Yes, let's keep our Bibles open in um, Genesis 18. That's where we are today, from verse 16 all the way to the end of the chapter. And since it's been a few weeks, since we had our last installment of our Genesis series, I thought maybe it's good to have a recap of all the things that we've learned so far, so that we're all kind of up to speed as to where we are today. So over this series, we've learned that God made all things just by the power of his word. He made everything good. He made the humans in his own image and blessed them equally, both man and woman. Um, he tested the humans and gave them free will with the tree of knowledge and good and evil. The humans believed the devil rather than God and were expelled from the presence of God in the garden. And so us humans, Adam and Eve, messed up the relationship that we had with God. Um, but God in his goodness promised a deliverer, a savior, who would restore the intimate relationship with God. And so since God promised to the people that somebody would come, um, the people put their trust into, or their hopes and expectations into different people like Cain, Seth, Noah, Shem, and so on. Um, but none of them could actually live up to the expectations that um, the people had. And so as we're reading through Genesis, we're seeing the, the line getting more narrow and narrow, coming down to um, the family from which God will bring the Savior. And so then God calls Abraham, a, an idol worshiper, from Ur in Chaldea and promise, promises to make him a great nation. But there's only one problem. Sarah is barren. She can't have any kids. And, um, but against all odds, Abraham believes God, despite, um, believes God more than the circumstances that he's able to see. And we learned that God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham. I don't know if you remember the story of the animal pieces being in different places and God walking through basically saying to Abraham, I will make sure these things happen. Even if you fail, these things will happen. Um, and Abraham has been obedient after that. That's the last thing that we heard. Abraham was obedient. He circumcised all the males in his camps. And last time... Barnabas explained to us how God and two angels came to Abram's campsite and had food with Abram and promised Abram and Sarah that within a year they would have a little baby boy after the many years of waiting. Abram was about 99 years old. Sarah was 89 years old. Is that right, Barnabas? He's not in. That's good. Um, so we're reading the same Bible. Um, we, heard, we also heard the infamous story of Sarah laughing in the tent. And that's kind of where we ended up. Um, and God rebuked her for laughing. We also learned over this um, course or over this series that the Bible uses different word, names of God. And it's always appropriate for the account that we're reading what name of God is used there. Um, and I just want to point three out. One of them is Elohim, which means the mighty one, and is usually translated with God in our Bibles. Then we have Adonai, which means master or owner, and it's translated as Lord. And we have God's own name with which he um, introduced himself, Yahweh, the I am, the continuing one, um, the all-sufficient one, and it's usually translated with Lord in all capitals. So, today um, we start off where Barnabas left us, and he left us with a challenge of doing what we know to do immediately and fully. 
And that includes our own lives and it includes bringing the gospel to our local areas, but also, and not less important and not less urgent, to the ends of the earth. And what do sinners need more than a clear testimony of God's people and the presentation of the good news and discipleship? And today our applications will go into a similar direction, so it's quite fitting some of the songs that we sang already, Everyone Needs Compassion. Um, that's the song we sang, right? Yeah. Sorry, I was just questioning myself there. Um, so we know that God wants everyone saved. And today we'll learn that God is a communicator and he's clear in his communication and he's a close, intimate communicator and um, that he's not being secretive or a distant being. And we'll learn that we should be pleading with God for the lost, both, both those who are close to us and those at the end of the earth. So let's walk through the text and make a few comments and um, see what we can find. We'll start in verse 16. And it says, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abram went with them to set them on their way. So these guys just had their feast at Abram's house, and now they're setting off to go somewhere. And um, they have a direction in mind. They, they're not just aimlessly wandering off. It seems that they've been walking towards Sodom and came past Abram's campsite purposefully. And so they are, they are actually going somewhere. They're going to Sodom. We know from the text that, Lot, uh, that Abram's nephew Lot and his family were living in Sodom as well. And uh, what I want you to notice here is that it says, they looked down towards Sodom. Most likely Abram's campsite was on top of a mountain, but it's also a metaphorical, a, a spiritual um, note that we need to take here. It's the same words used in, as in Genesis 8, uh, 11, when God looks down on Babel. He looks down on Babel and he sees how these people build the tower and want to become um, like God in a way, or want to reach God. And so the Hebrew reader, when he reads this, it would straight, take him back straight to Babel, to the story. So we can make that connection as well, where God judged the world, judged the sin of the people and dispersed the nations into all places. And uh, we're not told how Abram knew that they were going to Sodom, but maybe God told him, maybe it was just that was the road, but he knew that they went to Sodom. And so he went with them to set them on their way, whatever that meant. It's probably a cultural thing. He just walked along a little bit. Or maybe he just wanted to spend some more time with God. Let's go to verse 17 to 19. And it says, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abram what he promised him. It starts off with the Lord said, and um, it kind of takes me back to Genesis 1.26, when God says, let us make men. Um, only that this time God is speaking in the singular form. He says, I uh, shall I hide from Abraham rather than shall we hide from Abraham? So we're not, I'm not exactly sure whether God is actually saying this to Abraham or whether we get an insight into what God is thinking and talking to himself or within himself. 
but either way it it was recorded for us and um, we can learn things from here um, we learn that God reveals something about his character he's a communicator he doesn't want to keep Abraham in the dark he wants to explain to Abraham what's happening God wants to communicate with us and his nature is to reveal himself to us he's relational he wants us to know him and he know uh, and to know what he is planning and doing and God's reason for letting Abraham in, in on his plan is that he will make Abraham a great nation through him through whom all the nations shall be blessed and this was God's plan and promise for Abraham. He said, through your offspring, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. And we live in this blessing today. This offspring or this seed that God had spoken of in the Old Testament was Jesus, as we can read in Galatians 3.16. And through him, everyone has now access to God. And a restored relationship with God is the greatest blessing of all that we can have. God shows Abraham to command to his children and his household after him, so all the people who would come after him, even us, to keep the way of the Lord. And what is the way of the Lord here in this case? It says, the way of the Lord is doing righteousness and justice. God wants his people, so Abraham's children, to represent him precisely. He wants them to be people who live his way, not their own way. God is righteous and God is just. God's never made a mistake, and he's never made a morally wrong decision. He's actually never made a wrong decision, ever. And if he did make a mistake or do something that wasn't good, then he wouldn't be absolute good. And thus, one of the pillars that we understand God is, that he is good, would collapse. And our theology, our understanding of God would be wrong. And quite honest, if God wasn't good all the way, then I wouldn't want to follow him. I wouldn't want to trust him. So God is good. God is, um, God is just. And his, justice, his judgments are always correct and always fair. And he's never swayed by any personal preference. And you can read that in Psalm 89 and in Matthew 16, 27. God is impartial. He loves all people the same, but he also judges all people the same. And we can read that in Romans 2, 11. Let's maybe just I'll read that verse to you. Romans 2.11 and it says for God shows no partiality God is not partial God treats everyone the same and these two characteristics of um, righteousness and justice will become more important as we go on in this passage um, God is here on his way to judge Sodom and Gomorrah because of all the sins that were committed there. And this judgment wasn't a rash or impulsive decision that he heard this outcry from Sodom and now he's like, I'm going to destroy them. This judgment was not rash or impulsive. It wasn't a decision made, made in haste or because they weren't Abram, uh, Abram's children or from a certain line of um, heritage, but it was a fair treatment to the level of depravity of the sin of the people. God is just in his judgments and also righteous in all his judgments. God can make this kind of judgment because he made everything. He owns everything. God made the rules. He's just. And when the rules are broken, they require penalty. 
Um, God had made a promise to Abraham and his descendants that he would bless them and the whole earth through the seed of Abraham. And this would happen with or despite, despite them. That's interesting that this sentence flowed in there. Sorry, I'm a little bit confused, you know. Something happened with my notes. Maybe I just wrote them like that and they don't make sense this morning. But anyway, what we can take away is God is just, God makes the rules and that's what's important. Ah, now I understand where it's coming from. The last bit of the of these verses, um, when it says, um, for I have con chosen him to, uh, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the Lord, uh, the way of the Lord, doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he promised him. So God made an uh, unconditional promise to Abraham that he will bring about the seed of Abraham who would bring blessing to all people with or despite him. But when we continue reading, God will bring a law to the people. God will give them the commandments and everything. And then in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, we can read of God's blessing and God's curse. He says, if you keep my words, there will be blessing and there will be abundant blessing. If you don't keep my words, there will be curse and it will be horrible. So God wanted Abraham and his descendants to actually enjoy everything that he promised them. And to be able to enjoy it, they would have to keep his commandments and follow his ways. So verse 21, uh, 20 and 21. Then the Lord said, Because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the Lord said, so I was probably a bit taken back and confused. Did God think the stuff before and didn't say it and now spoke to Abraham? It may be because we have this um, little interruption here when God first said, then the Lord said, or the Lord said, and then said, then the Lord said. But again, we don't know if Abraham only heard this bit of the talk of God or if he heard the whole, um, the whole thing. But it doesn't matter because what is important is that it's recorded for us and we can learn from it. And the reason why God's going down to Sodom and Gomorrah is because of the outcry about sin. And there's different opinions what the sin was and what the grave and very big sin was that happened. And I'm not going to go into all of this. Sin is sin and sin is bad. And God will always judge sin. God gives his reason for his journey to Sodom. He's going to investigate whether the sin that he heard about is really as bad as it is. Does that bring some kind of conflict in you about what you know about God? In a way it does, doesn't it? To me it did. Like, Why does God need to go and see? Is God not everywhere at the same time? Does God know everything or does he not know everything? Why does he need to go and check out whether what he's heard is actually true? And I don't think it is a conflict. It is not that God is not everywhere present at all times and he doesn't know everything. So why does he need to go down? I think he goes down not to check it out for his own benefit, to find out, is it really like that? It is more for us. So we know God doesn't just 
judge willy-nilly like oh yeah i've heard this let's knock him over no god actually goes and um, shows to us that he tests everything that he knows everything god knew exactly what was going on in sodom and i believe that god just wanted to prove a point to abraham and to us as well so he went down to sodom just as he, as he had gone down to babel and he's showing us that he is just he sees everything that is going on he actually shows it by physically going there or telling us in his word that he's going there there's nothing hidden from him whatever sins were committed in sodom god knew about them but if he had just gone ahead and poured out his judgment without any announcement or without any reason we wouldn't know why god would have destroyed these cities and god's showing to abraham that he has a case against sodom and he has evidence and uh, he has all the evidence he needs to pronounce a just judgment. It's also to show Abraham that God is righteous and God is just. He doesn't just do something because of hearsay. He actually has, he has a very strong case. God went down to Sodom and, uh, for our benefit so that we would know that he is just. That he comes into our world and he sees what is happening. God knows Abraham's heart and his desire for justice. So God shows him that his judgment is right and just. And God is going to pronounce the correct judgment over the sins of Sodom that were so bad that people cried out and God heard it even in heaven. And later in Exodus we'll read how the Israelites will be crying out over the, the treatment that they get from the Egyptians. And God will again hear them and God will act. Verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abram stood before the Lord. So the two angels that were with God keep walking towards Sodom. And God and Abraham have a little important talk. God takes time for Abraham. So he's now revealed to him the judgment or some judgment that he will bring onto the, onto the uh, city of Sodom. And God takes time for Abraham. Because he knows Abraham has got thoughts and he's got concerns about what's going to happen. God listens patiently and answers all of Abram's objections and questions. And God knows us. He knows exactly what we need. And he will satisfy every single one of our needs. He is there for us. God knew that Abram needed this conversation to put Abram's mind to rest. Abram's nephew Lot lived in Sodom and he just heard that God is going to go and destroy Sodom. So it was a scary announcement for God. And um, yeah, surely Abram was worried that this judgment was, would include his beloved nephew and his family. And maybe even some business partners that Abram gotten, uh, had gotten through, through the time that he spent in that area. So Abram was, I'm sure Abram was worried and concerned about the whole thing. So in verse 23, it says, Then Abram drew near. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? God hadn't exactly revealed to Abram yet what he's going to do to, to Sodom. But Abram knew the city. And he knew God. And putting two and two together, he knew that the judgment would be severe. And so Abram asked this kind of loaded question. Like, will you really sweep away Lot 
and his family and possible business partners and maybe friends with them? Would you really throw everything overboard, just destroy everyone? Would that not seem a little bit irrational and unfair, maybe unjust of God? Maybe there were some people in Sodom that weren't that bad. Well, we read about the king of Sodom in Genesis 14, 21. That's after Abram rescues Sodom and Gomorrah and some other people there from, from the four mighty kings. And the king of Sodom says, take everything you want. So he's not that bad, is he? He's not like, oh, well, you helped us, whatever, go away. No, he's actually, he's grateful to Abram. And he wants to say thank you. So maybe there were some people who weren't that bad. Verse 24. Suppose there are 50 righteous in the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare the 50 righteous who are in it? And then Abram, a, business, a good businessman and strategist, begins his negotiations with God. So God, Abram wants to save his nephew Lot and his family and maybe business partners there. So 50 people seems like a large group. I don't know how many we are in here today. 50 people seem like a it's like a big group. When you stand in front of them, it's a big group. But if you compare it to the size of the city of Sodom, it's just not really that many. I'm sure Owen will have something to say probably about the size of Sodom and Gomorrah. From my research, I found that there's probably about 1,200 people maybe living in Sodom. But it's difficult to tell because nobody was actually there when to record it and say there was this many people living there. And 50 against 1,200 is... Not many. I'm not going to do the maths because you can do that probably better than me. And um, I just want to have a quick thought about what righteousness is. And righteousness is a condition of absolute cleanliness. Righteousness can only be lost. You cannot acquire righteousness. Once you've become unrighteous, you've become unrighteous. So like a white piece of paper, you can make one little dot on it that is whatever color you want it to be, and it's not white anymore. It's white with a dot. And even if you try to erase it, you can't erase it. So righteousness can only be lost. It cannot be acquired. And once it's lost, it's gone forever. But we've also learned that God can give righteousness to people. God gave Abram righteousness because Abram believed him. Abram leaned on God. He was still the same guy as he was before. He was still the old clever, sneaky man who always tried to find ways to get around trouble. He still sinned, but because his faith in God and his leaning on God, God counted him as righteous. And so Abram's offer is, if you find 50 people who believe you, God, will you really destroy them with everyone else as well? Verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that justice, uh, so that righteousness, sorry, let me read that again. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And now Abraham tries to be really clever. He knows God, he knows God is just, and God is right, uh, righteous. And so he kind of tries to manipulate God into doing what he wants him to do, because of how he understands him to be. It's almost like he's saying to God, 
Look, you're known as this good and patient provider God, as the righteous and just judge of the earth. So if you just wipe out everyone without mercy, even the righteous ones, there will kind of be a bad image on you. There will, there will not be a good look on you. People will think, oh, he just, is a, he just destroys everything. It won't look good for you. And he's trying to get God to not destroy Sodom. Far be it from you. He uses this phrase two times. He's really determined to get God away from this idea of destroying Sodom. He's really wanting to, God, to stop God from going through with this, this thing. And he's trying to manipulate God. And I wonder how often we do that. We understand God to be a certain way, or I do. And then I try and pray to God and say, well, God, you are like this, aren't you? So please do this for me because this is what I think you are. And then he says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And I found that many take this verse to excuse themselves from evangelism or reaching the unreached peoples. Because shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? What if somebody never, has never heard the gospel, never had the opportunity to hear the gospel? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Surely God can't condemn them to hell. Surely God is kind and loving. That wouldn't be a good, good look on God to just destroy somebody because they didn't hear about him. But God is just and God is fair. And he has determined there's only one way to become righteous. And that way is through faith in his son who died for us. There is no other way. There's many passages in the scriptures that tell us this. And here are some examples of that. John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12 says, There is no salvation in anyone else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. John 3.3 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3.18 Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you believe the Bible, there is no other way to God, to righteousness, than Jesus. There is no way around the fact that there is no one righteous, only the one who believes. Verse 26. And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for the earth's sake. I find it surprising that God has already made his mind up. Yes, I will destroy the city. And Abram says, If you can find fifty, God says, Yes, if I can find fifty, okay, I will not destroy the whole place. That's not even what Abram's asking. Abram's asking, Can you take the fifty out if you find fifty? And God says, Well, if I find fifty, I will not destroy the whole place. If I can find 50 people who believe me, who trust me, I will not do it. God doesn't like killing people. God doesn't like destroying people. God doesn't want anyone to perish. We read in 2 Peter 3, 9, 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God loves people. God loves all people. The people of Lincoln, but also the people of Afghanistan, of Papua New Guinea. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's probably the most quoted and most famous verse of the Bible. God doesn't delight in the death of the unrighteous. Ezekiel uh, 33.11 says, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Can we believe God? Yeah, we can. He has no pleasure. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the, but the, the wicked would turn away, uh, turn his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? God doesn't want anyone to perish. And now let's read um, verses 27 to 32. And that's Abram's negotiation with God. And Abram answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I, can find, uh, if I find 45 people there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there? And he said, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there? And he answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there? And he answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. And then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there? And he answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And we find a discussion here, a negotiation here. And I find it really challenging. Because Abraham puts himself essentially between God and the people of Sodom. Abram puts himself between the righteous judge and the unjust people, the, the evil people of Sodom. He just called God the judge of all the earth and still he stands in front of the people of Sodom. Abram negotiates with God and kind of increases his demands on God. He starts off with 50 and slowly makes his way all the way down to 10. We find him making six offers to God and say, God, please, if you find this many, please, if you find this many. And six times God says yes. So maybe by, by the time Abram reached 10, he thought of, okay, I've got Lot there. Lot has two daughters and a wife, so surely they will be righteous. Then he's got two son-in-laws there, that's six. He can put, probably think of four businessmen, maybe, that he had some dealings with. Well, like, he lived in that area for a long time, so he, he must have had some contacts. Maybe four people who weren't quite that bad. And I kind of feel like he gets down to 10 and thinks, okay, I know 10 people. I think this can work out. 
And God could have said to him, you know what, Abraham? Don't do all this negotiating. It's no point. You're trying to convince me to turn from my cause, but I know there's not even 10 righteous people in Sodom. The only one that we know of that was righteous was Lot. We read that in the New Testament. But still, God listened to Abram. He patiently stood there and talked to Abram. Abram brought all these offers and God said yes. And I'm sure God did that to show Abram that he wasn't just wiping the city out because he felt like it. But he had a reason. And he had every right to do that, even in Abram's eyes now. And God showed himself just to Abram and to us by going through this negotiation. We see that Abram is quite nervous as he speaks to God. And maybe even not unsure if he can talk to God this many times. Because he says, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, I've already said something. Maybe I can say something else. Please don't be angry with me. Can I, can I just, just, just this once? And yet he dared to beg God for mercy, for Lot and for his family, and maybe others that he knew. Abram risked his own life to save his nephew and the city of Sodom. Oh, Abram had risked his life before when he rescued Sodom and, uh, Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah and so on from these people. And now God was going to destroy the same people that Abram risked his life for to save. Surely it would have been a good, better look on God if he would have just left them in captivity and let the, these mighty kings that overpowered them kill them and then the sin would be dealt with as well. But he didn't. God wanted to do it this way. In verse 33 it says, And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abram, and Abram returned to his place. So Abram felt like he'd done everything that he could to prevent this judgment. Maybe he went home almost happy to think, okay, I can think of 10 people. It's okay, I'm going to go home. It's, it's okay. But I'm sure he still had this little niggle in his heart. I'm not, yeah, maybe, maybe not. And he went home, probably still worried stiff about Lot and his family, his two daughter-in-laws and his, um, Lot's two daughters and Lot's wife. Would God find enough righteous people? What would happen to Lot? And Abram must have known about all the evils that were going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet, for the sake of two handfuls of people, God would spare the city if he could find them. God would spare all those who would deserve this punishment. And God and Abram agreed on ten righteous people. Would God find ten righteous ones? To find out more, come back next time. Owen will tell you. Or you can just keep continuing reading your Bible. Um, I won't go into that. But I'll take some applications from the text that we've read today. So we've read now, we've made some observations. Um, and let's not just leave it at this academic or mental exercise. God's word demands us to change. God's word demands change of us. It wants to be applied to our lives. James 1, um, 22 to 25 says, But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. 
but the one who looks into the perfect law, so the scriptures, the law of liberty, and perseveres is the hero who uh, is not a hero who forgets, but a doer who acts, and he will be blessed in his doing. So God's word is not just a storybook that we just read and think, oh, that's a nice story. It is something, it is the eternal, it's the word of the eternal God, and it's made given to us. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, now these things have happened to them as an example, uh, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So what can we take away from this passage today? I think here are some things that we can apply of the passage that we've read. Just a few takeaways about God. What did we learn about God? God knows what we need. God knew exactly that Abram needed this conversation. He needed this negotiation. God knew what was going on in Abram's mind and he patiently stood there and listened to him. God knows what you need and he will meet your needs. God communicates. God doesn't keep things from us. He reveals himself to us. It's actually in the, in the New Testament, Abram's called God's friend or friend of God. And here's a little passage from um, John 15, 15. When Jesus says to his disciples, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I made, have made known to you. If you are God's friend, he will share with you. You will hear from him. He doesn't hide from people. He doesn't hide from you. He's always there, ready to show more to you about himself, of himself. But remember that if you want to know more from him, you need to be his friend. Not just a distant follower that is just going somewhere and trying to see, okay, what do other people experience with God? How do other people hear about God? So, okay, God must be like this, like this. God wants to have this personal relationship. And you can be a child of God, but not Jesus' friend. Because sin drives a wedge between us. Between you and Christ. And if you are in that distant place, away from Christ, confess your sin, turn from it and come close to him. Enjoy the intimacy of a friend with God. And we read here that Abram drew near to God. He drew close to God in this conversation. It wasn't an easy conversation. It was difficult for Abram. It must have been difficult for God as well, knowing to say, yes, I will not destroy the city if I can find this many knowing fine rightly that he wouldn't find them. God is gracious. God doesn't want anyone to perish, not even the wicked ones. God wants to forgive anything and everything. And Jesus paid it all. Any sin and every sin is covered, but we need to take advantage of this gift. God is patient. God was patient with Abraham's negotiations, with Abraham coming over and over. Okay, well, I've asked you already, but maybe we can... Make the demands a little bit higher. God was patient with the people of Sodom. He rescued them from their enemies a few, probably a few years before. But they chose to continue in their evil ways. And so God was just and righteous towards them. And a few takeaways for us. And a few challenges maybe, if you will. Draw close to God. If you want to know God, 
draw, draw close to him. Abram walked with God and then they stopped and he stepped a little bit closer to God when he spoke to him about this. Sorry. Draw close to God and pray for the lost. Um, and just studying this, pray for the lost. Abram knew the evils that the people of Sodom committed. He knew the reputation of the people and yet he prayed for them. He interceded on their behalf. And this passage, just studying this passage has been a big challenge to me. So I remember I used to pray a lot for my family and friends who weren't saved. And after a while you just forget about it because it becomes normal. My auntie, my uncle who aren't walking with the Lord at all. My cousins, my friends, my neighbors maybe. And it was a big challenge to me. I, I had to repent and say, Father, I'm sorry. I have neglected praying for them. Do I pray for my family, for my friends, for my colleagues who don't know Christ? Do I spend time interceding for those on the way to hell? For those living in Sodom? The Bible is very clear. It says in John 3, 18, Whoever believes in him will, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he had not, has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So how much time do I spend praying for a better job or praying for my health or prayer around, in, uh, like, around things that I want? How much time do I spend on my knees before the Lord for the people of Lincoln or wherever you are from? For me, that's North Coast near Grimsby. How often do I pray for the guys just behind this door? Like if you think a few weeks ago, somebody banged on the door and we get annoyed with them. And obviously we do because we have a service here. But how many times do we pray for the guys who live just over there? And not just pray for them to get a better job or to find a place to live. That's not what they need most. They need salvation. How much does it concern me that there are billions of people out there in this world who have never had a chance to hear the gospel and will not have a chance until, unless the church goes? They've never heard of this Savior who wants a relationship with them. How much pain does it cause that maybe your mother or your father are not in the fold of the, Lord, of the Good Shepherd? How much do you think God longs for a relationship with your neighbor? How much does God's heart bleed for the people of Afghanistan, for the people of Brazil, for the people of England, who have no access to the gospel? I needed to repent and I still need to repent of my laziness in prayer and intercession. I'm trying to remember each day to pray for those loved ones who don't know Christ. I don't want them to go to hell. I don't want my cousin to go to hell or his kids because I love them. I go and see them every now and then when I can and it's nice and I get on with them but that's not all. I pray for the people. I pray for people to share the gospel with them in a way that they have there locally and I pray that the testimony that you know, we as a family have with them would be something that will draw them close to God. And when we pray for people, God changes our hearts towards them. You can't be indifferent to a person that you're not praying for, or that you're praying for. God changes your heart. He aligns it with His. 
And he loved this world so much that he sent his one and only begotten son. Not that, so that he could have a benefit from it. God doesn't need anything. God doesn't even need our souls. But it's for the benefit of us. For our own benefit. So today I challenge you to pray for your daughter. To pray for your son. Pray for your mother and your father. Maybe your brother or sister. For your neighbor. To pray for your grandchildren. For your boss, your colleagues. Your students, your customers. And maybe the guys behind the door. Just there. Stand between them and God and beg for their salvation. And just as Abram did, pray, pray, pray. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you, need, you know us. You know exactly what we need. And we thank you that you are so good and so faithful. That you are so good and so righteous and so just. And yet you are merciful. You forgive and you, you sent your own son to die so we might live. We thank you so much for this. We thank you that we can trust your goodness, that we can trust your justice, and that we don't have to be afraid of you when we live in a close relationship with you. But at the same time, we see the people of Lincoln, we see the people living here in the YMCA and others, and I thank you that this church has historically been involved with them and still is. And our Father, we pray that these people, that we wouldn't just give them food or clothes or just an ear to listen to, but that we would be able to give them the gospel. That they would get to know you because that's what they need above all. And our Father, we pray for those who are going out into different places, that they wouldn't just go out, build hospitals and dig wells. Because that's not what the people need most. The people need you. and they, That's what you long for. And we thank you that we can come to you and we pray today. And I, I want to repent myself and I want to ask for forgiveness for all of us that we forget to pray for our families, for our friends, for our colleagues, for our neighbors to be saved, that you would spare their lives. And maybe we are the righteous people who are just around them who need to share with them. My Father, I pray for, for my own family who don't know you for my cousins, for my aunties, for, my, for their, their kids, for their husbands and their wives. You know their hearts, you know where they are. And I pray that you send people who will be able to explain the gospel to them in such a way that is powerful, that is understandable, relatable to them, and they would get to know you. And our Father, we pray for servants, for harvest workers, that you would send them out into the world to different places, to all the places of the world, you know how many have not had the chance to hear your word because they don't have it in their language. And we have it here every Sunday. Our Father, we pray that you would send out people and that you would save people from every tribe, tongue and nation as you have promised. Amen. <laughs>